At the beginning of May this year, I had the privilege of being at Alberta Bible College for what we call a leadership summit, which we do every year. Uh, Church leaders from around the province, from the Restoration Movement churches, and some from BC as well in Saskatchewan, come together and talk for three days about usually some specific topic. Uh, Oftentimes it's related to church growth somehow or related to church planting or something like that. This year we talked specifically about why it is that young adults are leaving not just our churches, but churches uh, of all stripes across North America. And it's kind of interesting. You know, there are places like Africa where the church is, is growing drastically. I mean, there's huge progress uh, in many countries in Africa. But in North America, the church, in some ways, is not doing as well. And so we're excited about uh, the possibility of James being here to talk to us today about the same thing that I heard him speak about at Alberta Bible College, which was a study that he's done, which I'll let him tell you more about, hemorrhaging faith, why it is that young adults are leaving, what we can do about it, what what strategies there are for the church to try and deal with this, and especially within our own families, and I'm excited about that. James did a fantastic job at Alberta Bible College, and when he was done, I said to several people around, we're going to have him come to our church. And we'll, we'll do this sometime soon. I, and I was just fortunate uh, enough to be able to talk to him right then. Uh, we got him committed to come today and do this. And I'm really excited that James is here. James is a longtime youth worker in Canada. 22 years he's worked with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. If you've ever been up to Pioneer Ranch Camp, that's an InterVarsity Fellowship camp. And um, James mentioned me earlier that he's been there numerous times doing things for them as well. In addition to 22 years of youth work uh, in Canada, he also is an adjunct professor at the University of Lethbridge. If you do any kind of Christian study in sociology at all, you'll you'll know the name Reginald Bibby. Reginald Bibby is probably the chief Christian sociologist in Canada, uh, maybe in history. He's probably done more work uh, in terms of analyzing Canadian culture with respect to the Christian faith as there is... uh, that anybody's ever done. And our guest today, James, uh, studied directly under Reginald Bibby, did his master's degree under uh, Bibby at the University of Lethbridge. So he's well-trained. He's a churchman. And I I told James this earlier. You know, a lot of times when we ask someone to come and speak, when I hear a high-powered speaker, a lot of times I'll talk to that person beforehand, try and, you know, meet that person a bit, spend some time with them. A lot of times it's good, sometimes not so much. Sometimes when I hear a high-powered speaker, a guy who's being sought after everywhere, he knows he's being sought after everywhere, and his attitude comes with it. Always frustrating. I didn't sense that in James at all from the very beginning. Uh, I just, you know, I, I talked to a guy who just loves the Lord. I talked to a guy who just loves the church. I talked to a guy who just loves young people. I talked to a guy who, while studied and doing good work and talking about what it means to address this problem of young adults leaving the church today, has done a masterful job of just um, letting his academic life and his work life cohere with his Christian life. And so his heart and his soul belong to Jesus Christ and the church more than anything else. And I I just sensed that in him from the moment I met him. And James, that's exciting to me. And so James, come and spend some time speaking to us about hemorrhaging faith. And before you do, we want to pray. I'd love that. We haven't had a chance to do that yet. We really need to pray. Let's bow. Holy Father, I pray that you would bless this man's words today. 
and knowing his heart and his passion for you. I'm just so grateful that he can come and share with us things that we need to understand and know about what uh, is impacting so many people in so many churches. And God, you can speak to him today to individual hearts and minds. There are families that can be shaped today. There are lives that can be changed. There can even be generations impacted by what's presented today. And so this is, this is not just a, a workshop, another workshop, uh, a, a seminar that people come and listen to and they go away and we're done. We got the information. God, you can use this powerfully in people's lives to transform the way that they even conduct themselves in their own families. You can shape the way that leaders of families lead those families. And Father, we pray that you would lead you that you would lead and use James today specifically for that. Help him to present in such a way, God, that we're impacted uh, by you today. We pray your spirit would be present in every way through Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, it's a it's a incredible honor. Uh, literally an honor to be with you, okay? So I know this has been advertised to other churches, but I understand most of the people here are from this church. This is what is so beautiful about this workshop because it creates a culture where we're all speaking the same language. And out of it, you'll be able to go away from here, I promise, and make a significant difference in how you live your life with your own youth, your own children, and your own seniors, because we're all in this together. Uh, Kelly mentioned Reg. I want to let you know, and James Penner and Associates have paid for these, and Reg gives them to me at a discount. Uh, Any of the books on those tables right there are simply gifts for anyone to take. I I don't have enough for everyone, so please uh, only take one, let's say, per family. Uh, Or I also have a number of copies of something called Transfusing Life, Practical Responses to the Hemorrhaging Faith Report. And I'd like for us all to say those two words out loud right now because we want to talk about the positive today. Uh, Yes, there's an issue, But here's a beautiful thing. I I hang out with a spiritual director, and I've been doing this for a number of years. She's a Catholic nun, and she said this, James, God is in your reality, not your dream world. You wish life was different. God's not in your wish. He's He's in your reality. God is in what is exactly happening now today. So I'd like us to say the words transfusing life out loud because we don't want hemorrhaging faith in our world, in our, in our brain. We want transfusing life. Can we say that? Transfusing life. And who is the author of life? Well, it's Jesus, right? And uh, so uh, what I want us to do right off the bat is to focus in on this verse. Paul was one of the most educated people of his age. Okay, but look what he said. When I came to you, I did not come with elegance or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think that's powerful. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Okay? Um, I'm going to pray for you at the end of this workshop. And it is the Spirit's power which is being unleashed to change youth, change churches in Canada. Okay? So that's so important as we start. Making sense of hemorrhaging faith. Why did we call this study hemorrhaging faith? And I want to outline a little bit about it before I tell you the exact findings. Why hemorrhaging faith? This in front of you is a profile, 1984, 1992, 2000, and 2008. Uh, the data that Reg collected, Reg Baby collected, as well as I had the wonderful opportunity to be involved in the last three surveys. When you ask teens in public schools or private schools or Catholic schools, what is your religious affiliation? Uh, that's been tracked four times over the last number of years. So this is randomly selected high school students from across Canada. Look what's happened to the blue line, which is Catholic. Catholics from 1984 to 2008, in terms of teenagers, have gone from 50% down to about 32%. During that same time, Protestants, of which the Church of Christ would be a part, have gone from 35% down to about 13%. Look at the yellow line, okay? Now, the green line is other religions. This is largely due to immigration, okay? Uh, in fact, uh, out of our survey that we're about to tell you, 2,800, only 14 converted to another world faith. Christians don't convert to other world faiths in Canada, hardly at all, okay? Here's where they move. If you look at that yellow line... Almost every single person in that yellow line has either a parent or a grandparent who is either Protestant or Catholic. Okay? Do you see why we are calling it hemorrhaging faith? What's happening is this. God is in the heart of the grandparent, in the head of the parent, and in the library of the child. Okay? Faith goes from the heart to the head, to the library, okay? So that is really what this is about. This workshop is about every one of us looking to Jesus and saying, is my faith in my head or my heart, okay? That's what this whole day is about. Is my own faith the kind of faith that a youth would watch and say, wow, I want a life like this person? We live in a culture where this is the reality. This is a quote from Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. 
He said, youth today see images of perfect bodies everywhere. So they pursue them incessantly. They do not see images of perfect souls. And hence, they don't long to have one. Okay, does that make sense? They do not see images of perfect souls. And hence, they don't long to have one. Okay, but we're living in a digital world where the average 18-year-old male spends 10,000 hours in video gaming before they graduate from high school. Boy, you're going to have to be creative, and that's why you need faith in your heart, because you're going to need to have faith in your heart and talk to Jesus about that one, about how you get in the life of that teen, as they're distracted by video games, which leads to pornography. Uh, the demise of guys is on the bibliography sheet, a great little TED's talk on that particular topic. Well, here's the survey that we did. Uh, Angus Reid did a survey for us where we tracked on their panel 2,800 Canadians who had spent time inside walls of churches, okay, between the ages of 1834. We said, were you attending as children? Were you attending as teens? Were you attending as young adults? How often did you attend as a child? How often are you attending now? Okay? Well, when we looked at that data, I need to highlight something for you. Okay? When, so here's childhood, here's teen years, here's young adult years. I want you to see how the church is getting fewer and fewer people. Okay? So these ones that were attending, and these were sporadic attenders, um, these were non-attenders at the beginning of our survey, but look at this group here. These are sporadic attenders. These now say, I am no longer a Baptist or a Church of Christ or a Catholic or a Anglican. Okay? They now say, I am spiritual but not religious. Or they say, I have no religion. Or they say, I'm atheist. Or they say, I'm agnostic. Okay? But here's what I want to show you. How many inside the church say that? No red dots. Zero. 50% of sporadic attenders say that. 75% of non-attenders say that. Wow. Here is what is happening, okay? A growing number of the young adults who would grow up in this church if they are no longer attending this building and no longer attending church anywhere, which means they're picking up the culture and the attitudes and the values of places other than this place. Does that make sense? In other words, the way to say that... Um, oh, I'm going to show you one other slide. When we asked them, uh, childhood, what was your denominational affiliation? And then we asked them, what is your denominational affiliation now? Here's what we found. One out of two Catholics. Now, this is Catholics in Quebec, Catholics rest of Canada. See the blue. Still say they are Catholic in young adulthood. Okay. Main lines... Only one out of three. When I say mainline, that's meaning United Church, Anglican Church, Presbyterian Church, or Lutheran Church. Okay? 
of evangelical or the more conservative Protestant churches, uh, or what are often called sects, E-S-E-C-T, which are high tension with the world churches. Okay? These ones are mainline are often low tension churches with the world. Okay? High tension churches. Okay? Um, And what we find, though, is still two out of three of that group is still a Church of Christ, Mennonite, Baptist, Alliance, Nazarene. Okay? Now, what we find is interviews where people will say things like this. Doreen went to a university on a sports scholarship where there was a lot of Sunday conflict um, and couldn't attend church anymore. Okay? Because she's on a, a university team that's gone every weekend. Okay? Here's how she talked about her own experience of faith and what's happening within her own head. Okay? We call it dwindling church and faith, and, and faith participation. And here's what she said. Because even me not going to church for like four or five months, you kind of lose a lot of like the readings and like the small little details about the story, like God and his ways, like Jesus and his whole life. Yeah, you lose a lot of the solid things that it's based on. Okay, so sociologically, here's what's happening. Worldview hangs on the thin thread of conversation. Okay? Worldview hangs on the thin thread of conversation. If you are not engaging the conversation of the faith and you're picking up the messages from the culture, what's happening is you start doubting it within your own mind. Okay? It loses its plausibility in your own mind. Okay? And here's what James Davidson Hunter, and I have a bibliography at the back where you have all the resources that are listed in this PowerPoint. While it is possible to believe in God, one has to work much harder at it because the framework of belief is no longer present to sustain it in the culture. The presumption of God and of his active presence in the world cannot be easily sustained because the most important symbol of social, economic, political, and aesthetic life no longer point to him. God is simply less obvious than he once was and for most, no longer obvious at all. Isn't it interesting that our federal government has a finance minister but not a faith minister? Okay, isn't it interesting that in our schools, our public schools, we don't say the Lord's Prayer at the start of the day as many of the grandparents here and parents experienced as they were growing up in school. Okay, economically, there's no Lord's Day Act anymore. Okay, so in other words, in the broader culture, faith is not as supported, which means it becomes even more crucial And I'm going to use a line from Ron Rollheiser, the Catholic theologian on this. This is a time to be missionaries to your own children. This is a time to be missionaries to your own children. We need to be making sure that the faith is vibrant in our own kids. 
Okay. Uh, here's one other way I want to point this out, and this is a sociologist by the name of uh, James Cote, who I love his material, um, because he helps us understand macro social realities. He's a, a political economist. I don't agree with some of his answers, but I certainly agree with his diagnosis. What he says is teens right now are experiencing... Well, throughout culture, there's five main institutions that influence children, okay? Uh, you have family, you have religion, you have the government, you have education, and you have the market. Anything link, linked to profit and work, and because pop culture is profit-driven, anything linked to pop culture today that is mass-produced, fits under market, okay? Here's what's happening. Over time, we had family and we had faith that were the key primary voices speaking loudly into the lives of teens. But over the last 200 years, the voice of family and the voice of faith have been getting less and less, which means it's very hard for a youth to hear about God in our culture today and why we need souls like the ones in this room to creatively find ways to connect with those young adults because they're desperately looking for what the church has to offer. It's just they don't hear us. They ignore us because, you know, I mean, Miley Cyrus simply did something that gets more play than what Pastor Kelly is doing. And the answer is not for Kelly to turn into a Miley Cyrus. Okay? Okay? So, that's what's happening. And so I want to review the literature. Here is a very important sociologist by the name of Zygmunt Bauman. Okay, here's what he's saying. In a liquid modern society of consumers, what does he mean by that? Simply, it's fluid. We're in a society of consumers. We used to be in a society of producers. Okay, but now we're in a society of consumers and capitalism is going global. Okay, and, and here's what's happening. Capitalism always wants to eliminate labor, okay? Which means we now have an entire generation that is eliminated labor. Come out of university and try to get a job with a pension plan or benefits. Nope, just contracts, okay? And so what's happening, no identities are given at birth, like beloved child of God, which if you come here, you know you're beloved child of God. You're not what you do. You're not what you have. You're not what people say about you. You're this amazing, adopted by the king of the universe kid that has access to the storehouse. But kids don't realize that. In our culture. 
Identities are projects, tasks to be undertaken, diligently performed. And as soon as the iPhone 5 comes out, now they're creating an iPhone 6. And this one gets trashed because the last thing we want is a satisfied consumer because they'll quit consuming. Okay? Can you imagine the pressure that that's putting on kids? Diligently performed and seen through to infinitely remote completion. Rather than a gift, identity is a sentence to lifelong hard labor. Okay? It's just tiring. It's tiring having to get all those credentials and to figure it out yourself. Which means, this came out last year. And by the way, there's a documentary out now called Generation Jobless by CBC. Okay? Going through the roof are stress levels in universities and colleges. Okay? Because how can I find a secure future? Okay? It looks like there's a distraction out there. Okay? So what do, what do often Christian kids do with their, with their faith? Okay? Uh, there's a book written by Tim Clydesdale, and he says this, Many college students take their religious beliefs and practice and put them in an inner lockbox. How many of you have ever been down, let's say, to the Caribbean or something, or Mexico? The first thing you do when you get to the hotel room, you find that lockbox and you put what's most important, your passport and your wallet in there. Okay? That's what a lot of young people are doing with their faith as they enter trying to make young adulthood today. It's not that it's not important to them. It's they don't want it tampered with. And the world is... But you know, then they're down at the beach and you want to rent that uh, kayak and you can't because the credit card is way up at the hotel room. And that's the tragedy. Because if the faith is in the lockbox, you don't have access to the king and the keys to the storehouse and this whole way to live that allows you to address this culture. Okay? And so what's happening is that youth are actually spiritual tinkerers. They'll see a smorgasbord of religious ideas and say, well, you know, I don't know if I like the hell concept. Or, and what they're doing is they're, rather than faith standing up to the culture, because it's not based on the Bible, there's evidence even that evangelical churches are no longer being a conscience to the culture because this stuff isn't infusing only the kids. Personal consumerism and individualism is affecting all of us. But if we don't base how we live on the Bible, to quote John Stackhouse, How are we going to stand against the tide and how are we going to enter the conversation and say anything to the culture that the culture isn't already saying to itself? Okay, so here's another thing young adults are doing. A psychological orientation of maximizing options and postponing commitments. Okay, there's so much, I don't want to commit. And so it's this, I'm going to keep my options open But here is the tragedy. It's like exchanging a real woman for pornography, right? Maximized options, postponed commitments. 
What can we do to help our young adults, help everyone in our church to live the most passionately committed life for Jesus in this age? That's the call that is coming out of this research. And for 20-somethings, there is a fabulous documentary online. It's a TED's talk by Meg Jay called um, 30 is Not the New 20. Okay? How to use your 20s as a developmental sweet spot where you get identity capital rather than an identity crisis. So, let's look at the research and a couple research ahas. What we did was we did 250 hours review of the literature, which I've just presented to you. Then we did 72 coast-to-coast interviews of young adults. One-third who had stuck with church and faith. One-third who said, I'm still Christian, but I'm not attending. And another that said, I'm no longer Christian and I'm no longer attending. Okay, that then informed an Angus Reid survey, which was done, and we ended up with 2,049 participants, a 71% return rate, which is phenomenal um, for this type of research. And uh, this was 18 to 34-year-olds that answered a a survey based on the interviews and the review of the literature. Okay. When it came down, um, we realized we had gold. And there are some amazing principles that flew out of that research. Okay. So uh, it, we had francophones involved, aboriginals involved, millennials involved, older people like myself involved. Um, we had a same-gender-attracted person who's a passionate Christian who also was involved in the research and helped us, and uh, ethnic minorities involved, and out of it, we created the survey. Here's two ahas. One of the things that surprised us, because it's not as much found in U.S. data and suggests that we're more secular than the United States, and things are hitting us younger, is that more people are leaving before high school graduation than after. Okay? Secondly, that transitions are a key source to loss. Okay? So when you look, this group here between ch- childhood and teen years um, is larger a larger percent leave in total numbers than between high school and college. Okay? Here's the kind of thing we found in, in, in our interviews. Janice is a fascinating story. She is someone who went to... Her parents were, were unchurched, and she went with to a Salvation Army church with a neighbor. Wow! Fascinating. She loved the Sunday school. Got involved with a the most vibrant youth group she could get involved with. and she, In fact, she said, I was a bringer. We had, we had whack loads of our, our middle school or junior high that was attending this church. And then she said, oh, I now realize when I left church. Yeah, I know exactly. I started working more. 
I was probably middle of high school, grade 10, grade 11, when you start getting more jobs on the weekend. And the only thing that you can really work is Saturday, Sunday. And that was mostly, that was probably the time that I stopped because of work. During that interview, she said, funny, this is happening to me. I had someone ask me this week why I had left something I had started on my own. I'm going back to church. Research evangelization. We didn't even intend it. (laughs) But isn't it wild what happened for her? Okay? What is it that is keeping young adults from attending faith communities? Okay? Transitions are a key source of loss. Talk with a neighbor about this slide. What transitions do you notice? Uh, Here's Liz. I was 17 or 18 and I was truthfully partying really late on Saturday night and not getting up in the morning. And then after high school was when my youth group, which was more than my church attendance, went down. Because it was kind of, hey, you're 18 now. Why are you still in youth group? Also, leader C left the church. Then leader D left the church. That was youth pastor and senior pastor. And yeah, it wasn't as kind of the same people we were seeing in yeah. Okay, talk with a neighbor about what research uh, or what uh, transitions you're noticing in this slide that Liz is going through. Okay, what are you noticing? Shout it out. The people. There was a people connection that all of a sudden stopped. And here's an interesting thing. When you let go of a youth worker or a senior pastor... You know who you'll lose? Your fringe. Your fringe. Right? Because they don't have the deep connections with everyone else. Our research may be suggesting 30-year pastorates. What would it be to say, you know what? We're going to be a community that keeps growing and growing and growing. And we're going to keep making this be a place where our fringe becomes our center, and bring more fringe, right? Again, you know, I mean, there's times when transitions need to happen, but this was something that jumped out in the research for us, is people are so relational, they will only go where they trust. One of the highest values of teens is trust, okay? You cannot build trust with a billboard or the great website, Although that hugely helps so they can check you out without being here. Okay? But, wow! People build trust. Any other transitions that you notice there? Say more. They got to work. They're 18. They now have to work. It's time for people to find a job. Okay. Yeah. So maybe pressure. So there's geographical mobilization for some. Yes. Okay. What, what do you see for Liz? What happened? What was the transition she is experiencing here? Oh, loss of place. High school means she can no longer go to youth group. What? You mean we base what we do on the school system? Why would we do, an, why would we do that? Why is it that you, we cut people off after a certain age? I know a youth, I shared this research in Abbotsford and someone came up and said, you know what, last year we had grade up to grade 8 high school and then you transition into the next. 
We had 30 grade eights and not one of them made the transition into the high school. So it's relational. Again, what this is pointing to is relational. I'm not saying you should never have places where you cut off and move people on. But at the same time, we have to check our assumptions as to why we create the rigid boundaries where we do. We have a youth program where we've now created a whole way in which anybody that wants to can keep coming and they're raft. Well, what's a raft? We don't even know what the acronym stands for. You're just going to come here and you're going to float around and pick up anybody who's drowning. And they do and they love it. And they keep relationships with the leaders and turn into leaders themselves. Okay? Okay. Are they coming back when they're older? Well, I just want to point, we, we track them by age. Um, the, go with the yellow line, which means they're coming once or twice monthly. And I want to show you something. Notice how this is bigger than this. At 18, more are attending than at 34 in our survey. Never attenders, which is the dark gray. Notice the jump. Okay? So, again, our research isn't suggesting we're going to... You know how sometimes the thinking has been, well, when they have children, they'll be back because they want to dedicate their child and, and get involved with family programs. That's good in theory, but what we're finding is there needs to be the faith walk all along because otherwise you get influenced by other things in the culture. And you maybe had that intention of just taking a couple of years off, but it doesn't work out that way. So, here's a question. Let's spend a few minutes talking about, with our neighbor, what are the essentials of Christian faith that need to be imparted to make sure, that we need to make sure are imparted, how can we do it best, and is discipleship optional? Right? Would we let work, sports, partying, sleeping in be a reason children don't go to public school? Why is it okay for them not to come to church if we would make sure those things didn't stop them from going to public school? So a question is, uh, what needs to change so these are no longer reasons to drift away from church? And who makes these decisions? Talk amongst yourself. Grab one nugget to share with the group. Okay. Any comments? Yes. Ah. There is grace in our relationship. We're not perfect. Things happen. You know, we're not held to this um, legalistic standard yeah. as churchgoers. Yeah. And that the idea that there's a truth that is actually opposite or yeah. cultural. We could take this and turn legalistic, and that turns people away, right? You know that, you know that thing that says, treat people the way that you want to be treated? Okay. But you know, doesn't it say we have to get on our knees and say, God, you have to make this place real for all of us? 
You have to make this place so powerfully transformative, so filled with grace, so filled with radical freedom that people don't follow the culture, they follow Jesus in this place. Okay? So this is going to take all of us just deeply praying that this is such a transformational place that every time I'm here, I just get touched in a beautiful way. Right? So, very good point. We need to make sure it's grace, not legalism. I totally agree. Any, any other concept? Any other thought? Yes, over here. Yeah. She assigns it as church. And, oh, do we have to go to church in this? And so, I wonder if you get to that. What is the underlying dissatisfaction? Yep. It's something minor. Yep. And it's not... In fact... That reminds me of a very good point. This is a Eugene Peterson line. He said, when a young adult says to you, I'm no longer coming to church, it's not the first step to atheism. It's the first step to an adult faith. You can't get a free yes if you've never been allowed a free no. Okay? So you can't get a free yes to faith if you've never been allowed a free no. Okay, so there, there are some parents that say, as long as you're eating at this table, you're coming to church. Well, what's the first thing that person does when they're no longer eating at dad's table? Okay, so this is not about manipulating outcomes. It's about creating the kind of environment where faith is so real. And then here's the other thing he said. If someone is saying, and this is the point which I really appreciated, there's an underlying reason. Okay, so if someone comes to you and says, I'm not getting it. This isn't helpful for me, which is happening. We need to use young adults as our consultants, even if they're no longer here. We need to take seriously to prayer every reason a young adult gives us why they're not attending. Okay? Getting to the underlying reasons. Okay, there was something over back here. Yes? Oh, wow. Wow. Yes, yes, yes. In fact, we're going to get to a section on parents because that was a huge aha for us when we looked at. There's something about, about that that's very important we'll come back to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it fun. Yeah. I'm not walking away from you. I'm going to get an amazing resource. Uh, I'm reading a book right now called Seven Men and the Secret to Their Greatness. Okay? Here's Bonhoeffer. Look at Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer creates a seminary that's underground in Nazi Germany. Okay, and look what he says. Look what it says about that center. Bonhoeffer felt that to fight evil, one must train Christians how to pray, how to worship God, and how to actually behave as though those things were true. Yes, so an attractional youth ministry model I'm not saying that there's not a place for it, but I'm certainly saying we have to be committed to helping youth realize the resources of the gospel and how they can live a free, radically free life that is meaningful 
in the midst of this culture. Okay? So yeah, so there's a training component that is really important. Yes? I, I find it that we are afraid of talking about death. Ah. And our youth don't have a concept about death. I think yep. society are afraid. Yep. So we don't have a goal. Yep. Let's see God and go to heaven. You know what? Reg's book, Beyond the Gods and Backs, he studies death and how people of faith respond to death versus people outside of faith. And you know, we need to count our days, okay? Uh, I'm 55 years old. Uh, uh, I think I'm middle-aged, but how many 110-year-old men do I know? (laughs) Right? Okay? I only have a third left, okay? How do we live each season of our life with Jesus well? That's a very good point, okay? Yes, one more point and then we'll move. Two more points and we'll move on. Yes. It sounds like we have taught our youth that church is an event that they attend. Ah! Sorry, I didn't mean that. Yeah. (laughs) Keep going. We need to teach them differently. We need to teach youth differently that church is not an an event to attend. Maybe we all need to learn that differently, right? Yeah. It's how can we, as this local expression of believers, or whichever one you're from, be the most vibrant, on-fire place for Jesus we possibly could be in this culture? Yes? I think the last question is interesting. Who makes these decisions? Yes. They think that we're in Yeah. Yeah. And you know, let's say you are on the track to be a professional hockey t- player. Okay? You know, someone like James Reimer, uh, someone he, he was very involved in faith through his growing up years. Okay? So if you have in this congregation a potential hockey player, you should be going to all of his games and praying that he be his best self, right? So how can we make sure that we're going to support the ones where God is leading them into a particular calling, right? So, But at the same time, to let that person know, you're nothing if you don't acknowledge who is giving you these skills. It's Jesus that created you. He's the one that gave you these skills. And then out of it, how to live that very well. Excellent point. Okay. We're going to look at four types of young adults, and then we'll come in for a break. This was absolutely fascinating when we started reading the interviews. Because we would get something like this. One person would say, I don't think I've ever considered giving up my faith in Jesus... Sometimes my faith in Christianity, and that might be where I'm at, but I still love Jesus, okay? Other one, organized church is really doo-doo, okay? I can do without it, okay? Another one, Christian, Christianity was taught as the only way, but I don't like telling people, okay? So, you know, we were seeing these kind of quotes, But at the same time, we also saw quotes like this. My church meant everything to me. 
Oh, wow, this was not just an event, was it? It was my community, my family, my purpose. And I just love everything about church and God and serving Him and stuff. Another one said this. You need others to be able to sing. So people say that Christians and that, that they are Christian and they do it alone. I mean, come on, really. How will you be able to be a saint by yourself? Or another one. For me, it is my life. Life would be meaningless if I were not a Christian. Okay, so we started realizing in the data, we're going to get a variety of responses. For some people, faith is alive. For others, it's different degrees of dwindling. Okay, so we, we, we asked Angus Reed to do something for us called a cluster analysis. Are there whole groups in the survey that are answering the survey exactly the same way or relatively the same way? And we found out, uh, they got back to us and said, you have four types in your survey. And when we analyzed it closely, we realized we had engagers, we had fence-sitters, we had wanderers, and we had rejectors. And I'd like to point them out to you. Okay? Each group is different distance from the church. Okay? So th this question was, uh, the church makes a difference in my community. Look at what engagers say. Look at what fence-sitters say. Look at what wanderers say. And look at what rejectors say. Okay? Does this come clear, or do I need to explain? Yes. No, no. Uh, what is happening is the coloring of the PowerPoint. Uh, so no, they're, they're not they're not lumped together. That's a good point. Um, well, what I would say is probably strongly disagree is probably following something like this. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, here's an interesting thing. Our baseline, by the way, is the red line because we had fewer males in our survey. Uh, there's a difficulty getting males to do surveys, uh, millennial males. Okay, a whole topic in itself. Um, but here's an interesting thing. Look at, look at how uh, more... Females are engagers and fence-sitters, and more males are wanderers and rejectors. Okay? So there's a generational difference, and I think we need to clearly discuss and discern why is that. What's going on there? Okay? Bible reading. Okay? Now, this one is disturbing... Because only, even on our scale, only one out of two engagers is reading their Bible weekly or more. Okay? Do you see this? And these are our best category. Fence-sitters, they're hardly cracking open their Bible. Wanderers and rejectors are not. When we look at private prayer... Engagers are praying. A majority, a minority, a strong minority of fence hitters, but hardly no wanderers or rejectors. Okay? 
wow, do we need a new movement of falling in love with the Bible. Okay? Okay, so we have these four types, and I'm going to be, uh, over the next while, you'll see different places where they are, where they are um, highlighted. How do we reach these types? Well, let's, uh, let's take Lynn, who's an engager. She loves her church. Okay? In fact, you'll find that she's on a worship team. Uh, she's the kind of person that will show up for VBS if she's asked. Okay, um, she has relationships with other people in the church. Okay. Um, then we have fence sitters. Fence sitters may be there, but you know underlying there's a level of frustration with something for a fence sitter. Okay. When we asked, looked at the survey, and we looked at the biggest difference between an engager and a fence-sitter, it had to do with this issue. The majority of engagers say, I have experienced emotional healing in a church. But a majority of fence-sitters don't say they've experienced emotional healing. Okay? What it suggests to me is that in churches there are fence-sitters that are on the fringe that someone needs to get to know. Okay? So I'm going to, I mean, I, I know a story of someone in our congregation who found out, he leads a worship band, and this girl on the fringe was a keyboardist. Hey, would you mind being on my team and play keyboard? You can just imagine the difference that is made in this person. Massive. Okay? What it suggests is fence hitters are waiting for someone to reach out to them, but they're already here. Or at least already here sometimes. Okay? Who is it on the fringes? That someone needs to go for coffee with. What? You're taking design and drafting? Well, we have an architect in our church. I'm going to introduce you to that person. Do you see, where, do you see how this works? Where, where we get to know the people on our fringe in a way that we can connect them deeply to this body. Okay? What about wanderers and fence-sitters? Okay. Well, a wanderer would be someone like um, here's 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 what we heard in one of our interviews. Okay, we'll call um, this wanderer Jill. Okay, Jill said this. She said, "I moved downtown Vancouver. Work rent is so expensive." I have to take every shift I can get. But when I get enough seniority, I'm going to ask for every second Sunday off. Okay? Um, There's many wanderers that are wandering for a variety of reasons. When we looked at the difference between a wanderer and a fence-sitter, 
And what was the thing that separated a wanderer and a fence-sitter? Here's a fascinating thing. Whether or not they felt that God answered their prayers and they sensed God's love. Okay? If you know of someone who is no longer attending church hardly at all, a good bet is to simply ask that person, how's God for you? Do you you feel like your prayers get answered? And just be open to that conversation because that seems to be what's happening there for a significant percentage. And then the difference between a wanderer and a rejecter, uh, I had someone come up to me after a workshop. He said, I'm an atheist. Uh, I grew up in the church, but I read the Bible and I can't make sense of a genocidal God or to figure out how they got penguins on the ark and how they got back to South America. Okay. So, fabulous question. And there are great minds that address him. But because of what he saw in the Old Testament and an inability for him to be able to process that, he, he has rejected the faith. Okay? The difference between a wanderer and a rejecter, the biggest difference um, on, on a particular variable is whether or not they think churches should do youth programs. Okay? Because often a rejecter says, if after my experience, some of these are deeply hurt, after my experience, I don't think churches do good things for youth, period. Okay? So there's a level of scarring that seems to have happened with that group. Well, here's the aha that, we, that hit us. You realize that every type is found in the New Testament, post-resurrection, stories of Jesus. Okay, we have Mary, who's an engager, right? She never left Jesus, even after his death. She's attending to the grave. She's wondering, where is he? Jesus shows up, and her world comes alive. And she literally, I think this is fascinating, that a woman became the apostle to the apostles. A woman became the apostle to the apostles. And and Jesus entrusted this woman. And she never left. She was always there. Okay? Well, fence-sitter. Remember Thomas? What Thomas' question was? Unless this happens, I won't buy in. Often that's the fence-sitter's response. Okay? How did Jesus handle him? Touch me. Check it out. I have an answer for the issue that you're raising. Thomas, my Lord and my God, and he actually becomes, tradition says, took the gospel to India. What about Peter? Okay. Actually, Peter ends up fishing. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my old life because this isn't working. Interesting. What did Jesus do for him? Went to where he was. Food. Very strategic conversation. Peter, you know that I love you, right? 
And look how Peter lived. And the rejecter. Okay, well, interestingly enough, we also could have put Judas as a rejecter. By the way, Jesus did not bat 100%. We shouldn't expect to bat 100% either. Okay? You know, uh, one of the things that's happened is I've run across a number of parents or grandparents that are feeling guilty. You know that, and we'll come to a slide, where our best responses, I mean, these were parents who were praying at home, reading their Bible at home, were living the faith. Seven out of ten of those kids are doing the same. But three of ten are not. Okay, so there is a choice. And there's also prodigal son and daughter stories of amazing things where they come home. Okay, so this is not in any way meant to put an ounce of guilt on anyone. But boy, you know, let's let the Holy Spirit stir our hearts so that our hearts are soft, so that we can go out of here more empowered to be what God wants us to be in this coming season. Okay, but not an ounce of guilt. Okay? If God is pointing something out, you know, remember it's the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Okay? You may be feeling some stuff right now as we're going through this workshop that is not intended for you at all. And I want to release you to freedom. And the last, the story isn't finished yet. Okay? We have a God who's used to getting out of graves. But Peter turns into this amazing disciple. Well, let's look at that rejecter, Paul. People were praying, and there was a supernatural intervention. And wow, did he ever turn, right? Just this amazing turning where Peter, uh, Paul, uh, just is brilliant in sharing the gospel and taking it to places. And you know what? There were people like Barnabas that helped tie the thread so that Paul and the church came and did amazing things. Remember, remember this story, this picture? It's the Emmaus Road. On the Emmaus Road, the disciples said this, We had hoped, we had hoped, we had hoped. And you know what Jesus said? He pulls out the Old Testament, which he had in here, and just pointing to himself. Okay? And he says their hearts burned within them. And then you know what he said? I think he really said, you're the hope. You're the hope. You're the hope. We are the hope. We are the answer to millennial revival. I'd like you to spend a little bit of time before we come in for a break on this question. What did the post-resurrection Jesus do and not do for 40 days, and then with Paul it was longer, with his engagers, 
fence hitters, wanderers, and rejectors. What did he do and what didn't he do? This is very powerful and very important. Okay? What insights can we glean from how to treat present-day young adults from each type? Have a conversation with a friend. Okay. Uh, we're we're, we're going to come in uh, just to stay on, on schedule. We're going to come in, uh, and, but I'd love some thoughts. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus not do? Okay. Any comment? Yes. No. He didn't shoo anybody out, did he? Okay. Very interesting. This was very relational work, wasn't it? Okay. Thank you. Anything else? What do you, yes. Sorry, could you say that again? Wow, he gave them hope by promising the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm going to mention a book. It's called The Churching of America, 200 Years of Looking at Which Churches Church, Which Churches Don't. Because over 200 years, you see from 17% to 62%, certain churches church and then decline. Church and then decline. Every church that grows is capable of, of miracles and takes the Bible seriously. Enough said. Okay? And then they can end up declining when they start accommodating with the world. Okay? Um, anything else? He promised the Holy Spirit. Yes. He gave them duties and responsibilities. This was a joint effort. Feed my lambs. Right? Yes. Okay? Here's what he did not do. He was not spectacular. He did not call the Jerusalem press and show up at the Sanhedrin and say, See, I told you I'd be back in three days. He didn't do stuff spectacular and he didn't do things powerful. He didn't go and clean up Rome with the whole army of, of, uh, uh, of angels. Although Rome fell within 300 years. Okay? He spent time strategically with his people. And that changed the world. One other point I want to mention is that this book, Transfusing Life, has specific practical suggestions on how to reach engagers, fence-sitters, wanderers, and rejectors. I'm going to call up Kelly and we're going to take a break.